Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jennifer Wagner Asali, an orthopedic surgeon practicing since 2007. She is also a certified athletic trainer with a BS in kinesiology, and she is a certified nutrition coach. Wagner Asali has been cycling since 2005 when she started doing triathlons and then gradually dropped the swimming and running to cycle and race full-time all while doing her medical training. As some of my readers might remember, I wrote about Wagner Asali's loss to Rachel McKinnon in October of 2018, and I am so happy to have Jennifer on the show. Welcome, Jennifer Wagner Asali, to Savage Minds. We last spoke three years ago when I was covering what happened to you in October 2018 for a piece I was writing. In the UCI Masters Track Cycling World Championship in Los Angeles, where controversially Rachel McKinnon, now he goes by the name Ivy, competed in the women's 35 to 44 age bracket competition, he won this race, beating you and another woman out. You came in third. There are so many things to comment about what happened after you spoke out on Twitter, from the bizarre reaction that you encountered the accusations that you were somehow transphobic, never that McKinnon was a cheat, to the second place winner, Caroline van Herikusen, who finished second, telling the media that it was an honest race and that you should not have competed if you thought it wasn't fair. Can you please describe for our listeners what happened in the run-up to this race? For instance, did you know a male would be competing against you? And if so, what did you and other women think about this? to the competition itself and the follow-up to McKinnon's having cheated that win. Yeah, so great to talk to you again, Julian. And um, yeah, I would love to get the rest of the details of the story out there. So leading into the race, everyone had to be signed up about a month beforehand. And the, the list was supposed to be finalized about that time and so that you would know who the competitors were and... Um, that way you could kind of maybe perhaps plan your strategies or something like that. So I knew that McKinnon had been competing on the track that whole summer because there was some social media buzz about it. And I already knew who McKinnon was because I had competed against him in some races uh, on the road. And I just have a strong memory of that as well. And so I already knew that name. And so I checked the list of entrants after it had closed and McKinnon wasn't on there. So I thought, hey, cool. Like this is actually going to be a fair women's competition. And so I was pretty excited. And so I never really thought about it again. And then, you know, as I was in Los Angeles, getting ready for my first couple of races, I just wanted to look again at the entrance names and kind of see if I remembered any of their uh, accomplishments or anything or what I needed to watch out for. And lo and behold, McKinn's name was on there. So somehow he got on the list after it was supposed to be closed. So that made me angry, first of all, because the rest of us had taken the time to sign up at the appropriate time interval uh, within the rules. And so that made me mad, first of all. But then my heart just really sank because I, I just knew, you know, what was going to happen. And um, I went on McKinnon social media. And of course, there was all kinds of bragging and boasting and uh, statements how he's going to dominate and going to win a championship and all these types of things. So Going into the competition, I was already distracted by this issue and pretty upset, but I didn't know how the other women felt about it because, you know, it, you know, that was of course, a couple of years ago, this was some, some of the women's first experience with this issue. And so I had no idea if they thought it was going to be cool or, you know, unfair or what. So I kind of tentatively approached the subject with a couple of ladies that I felt more comfortable with. And I just knew from the look on their face, they felt the way I did. And that opened up a whole new friendship with a lot of women that I hadn't really been close with before. 
So that's one good thing that's come out of this, I guess. But we kind of had strategy sessions uh, at the race prior to the start. And we're trying to think, you know, like, what can we do about this? Because, you know, we were searching the rules, thinking, is this even legal? Um, you know, what's going on here? And, and at the time, there was actually a rule that you couldn't compete in a master's event um, if you had also raced at the pro level, at the UCI level, and McKinnon had. And so we tried to raise that issue with the officials um, prior to the race, and we were basically dismissed. We created a I'm petition. I'm laughing while you're telling yeah. me this because I'm just <laughs> thinking, how insane is this? You can't just say, there's a man in our competition. You have yeah. to like become Sherlock Holmes, don't you? Yeah, yeah. we were like, what, what can we say that's going to like convince them that this is not right? And, you know, we were looking at the current, you know, transgender rules and cycling, which none of us had really ever looked it up because, you know, some of us didn't even know this was legal. So that should tell you one thing, um, that all these rules were put into place uh, basically by stealth. So women were not asked their opinion. These things were changed a few years ago and um, they've just kind of become part of the, the rule structure. Um, and now they're starting to be exploited, obviously. And uh, now that they're in place, it's much harder to get them repealed than it would have been to just have a discussion about it in the first place. But so anyway, we um, created a petition where a bunch of us signed it um, that we didn't believe that this was fair and we presented it to, to the officials. And um, we were told, well, Rachel's not that fast anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, just imagine this is the event that all of us had been focused on for, you know, sometimes a year, sometimes more than one year, because, you, you know, you're kind of thinking long term in the sport. So sometimes you have a goal several years in advance, like, okay, in 2018, this is going to be my year. This is when I'm going to be ready. And so the endless preparation that occurs over that time period, you know, builds up your confidence. It, um, you know, gets you excited about competing and sport and being with other women and celebrating them and yourself and just seeing the fruits of all your hard labor and seeing how fast can you really go. And it just felt like someone popped our balloon balloon you know we just we could see it in the, in, the, in the tea leaves you know we just knew what exactly was going to happen so we kind of talked about whether we should race at all and you know we spent thousands of dollars to be there of our own money you know at the master's level that means we're over 35 years old we don't have professional contracts we don't have people paying for our travel or our bikes or our hotels or anything like that um, you know, this is all self-funded and, you know, we pay for coaching outside of this, you know, you're paying all for supplements. And I mean, it's just a lot of your life gets uh, consumed by this and a lot of your money. So, you know, it's a passion project and we felt so passionate about it. We decided we still had to race. Um, we didn't want to throw all that away. And we just said, you know, we'll, we'll know who the real winners are. Um, that's all we could do at that time. We say, well, like, okay, let's just do it. You know, we can, we can work on this later. Obviously it's not going to change today. So yeah, we decided to race and, um, you know, there was a couple different races. Um, the first one was actually the 500 meter time trial. And, um, that was actually won by Sarah Fader and uh, Don Orwick, I believe. I can't remember the exact placing. She and I were both second and third. I think she might've got second and I got third. Um, but we basically had a party after that one because McKinnon got fourth. And I think I may have beat him by like a 10th of a second or something like really tiny. So we were just elated that it was an all woman podium. And, but, but we kind of were dreading the next one. <laughs> So you oppressed him then, in other words. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So yeah, yeah, we were the bad guys again. 
So, um, and you know, McKinnon has used that as a justification for why he's not dominating in the sport that, oh, see, I get beaten too. Um, but I think what people need to remember is that A, the fastest or strongest person in cycling doesn't always win because there's a lot of technique involved and there can be strategy as well. So, um, you know, some of that is not just pure power. There, there's a combination of things. So yes, it is possible. It's possible for me to beat a man who hasn't transitioned. Um, you know, there is overlap, of course. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is that, um, you know, just because someone doesn't win a race doesn't mean they didn't start out with an unfair advantage. So the, the example that I like to use, and I may have used this with you last time, is that, you know, if you and I want to uh, race against each other and we're going to run one mile and whoever gets to the finish line first wins, but you get to start, you know, maybe 500 feet in front of me, I might still beat you, but that doesn't mean you didn't come into the race with an unfair advantage. And, you know, we don't tolerate unfair advantages in sport. That's why we don't allow doping. You know, there's rules around the bicycle dimensions and, and, you know, that's why we have rules in general. So we don't tolerate unfair advantages, but in this case, somehow it's okay. Well, it's also bizarre how many people are coming to defend these men. And I say men because when there are women who identify as transgender, they're either competing in the male sports category or they're not because they've been embraced by, you know, somehow at that point, gender is wishy-washy. It's only when men decide that they're women that they force their hand on women's spaces. I've noticed this time and time again, and not just in sports, it's across the board. And I remember when we spoke a few years back that you told me, you know, the whole Twitter exchange that happened right after McKinnon won that race back in, in October of 2018, that you were harassed. And then you apologized, but you didn't apologize because of feeling that you had been cheated and you didn't apologize taking responsibility for the fact that McKinnon was getting threats because of what you were saying. You just said that you felt sorry because of stirring the pot. But at the same time, that was completely misrepresented both by McKinnon and the whole trans lobby where you somehow were gotcha, you know, it yeah, was exactly. you apologizing for being a, another bad woman. You're, you're just yeah. bad. Yeah, I got caught. <laughs> How has this sat with you in the almost three years since? Well, I mean, I've gone through a range of emotions since that time. And, you know, when we first talked, I was still kind of in that, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm not even sure what I feel. <laughs> I felt like I was getting input from kind of both arguments. And I felt like I could find logic in both of them. And, um, I, I just wasn't secure in my position. You know, I had not seen all these research papers showing that men retain muscle mass and strength and power even after uh, a year of hormone therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also, you know, I didn't really have a big Twitter following, so um, I hadn't posted this uh, anywhere else or really talked about it in public. And so I found that when I actually started talking about it in public or, you know, on, on Facebook where I have more friends, uh, the outpouring of support was, you know, way more than any kind of detractors. And, and who knows, maybe the people that disagree with me just unfriended me, but it's been overwhelming the number of people that have been supportive. And, and now I just feel like I'm just way more secure in my position. And I, I feel like I've adequately explored this issue from all sides of the coin. And it's getting increasingly ridiculous to me that we even have to have this discussion. 
Indeed. I find myself either getting very upset or laughing hysterically. And I'm tending more towards <laughs> laughing these days <laughs> yeah. because we're living in a global pandemic where bizarrely these very same people seem to know what science is. It's pick and choose science. Viruses mm -hmm. are real. So are female penises. You know, it's it's jumped the shark so many times. I've said recently we should stop saying jump the shark and just say she, the he, or I don't know. I'm sure I'll be called transphobic. I have been. But I find it phenomenal that the public has come around this issue. They've come to common sense on this issue largely because of two things. Children being transitioned, which has been called out by people even who were formerly supporters of this um, narrative. And then the sports issue. And there's something funny about sports that basic sense of right and wrong is built into the whole ethos. People, mm -hmm. men and women, are seeing the fraud behind this. Now, the Wokarati are still at it. Mm -hmm. I had a discussion on a group, a Facebook group for Radio 4 yesterday. <laughs> it was phenomenal to see women supporting this madness. Of course, I dare, I could bet money. They do not own a bicycle and do not do any kind of competition because uh, I was not at your level in cycling, but I, I cycled all throughout college and I lived with cyclists one year. We cycled 30 miles a day on the weekdays, double, triple that on the weekends every day. And I had, you know, legs like Lance Armstrong at a certain point, but I can tell you those guys whipped me. You know, there was, I was just beaten every time because these were men. They were also taller than me. I mean, you can go through all the dynamics of physiology and anatomy, but the fact that <clears throat> we have now the IOC and people protesting the IOC on both sides of this, it's insane that the IOC has also set unfair arbitrary testosterone limits as a way of including certain men. And even bizarrely, if you look at the Castor Semenya uh, saga, excluding women. What are your thoughts about all that? Well, it's just incredibly frustrating. You know, I just feel like a lot of times, you know, the voice for what I and a lot of my fellow female athletes are talking about is just ignored. Uh, you know, we've tried to contact the IOC and get in on their meetings, try to give input. I've offered to present research. Um, Dr. Chris Hunt, who I went to medical school with, has done extensive research in the powerlifting community. And, uh, you know, he and I are writing a scientific paper together and we've actually tried to get it published and it's been rejected from multiple journals. And I think it, because, you know, it's, it just, people are just scared is, is all I can think of. Um, they're scared of legal ramifications of, you know, opening Pandora's box, so to speak. And so it's easier to just kind of squash it. And, and so, in some ways it feels just like some days, like I just should give up. Um, but I just, I just can't, it's driving me crazy. And I, you know, like um, Linda Blade, who is, uh, you know, president of Athletics Alberta, who, you know, benefited from Title IX has said before, this is the hill I will die on. And when she said that was so committed, I said, oh my gosh, like this matters, you know, like this really matters. And yeah, these, these rules are just made up out of nowhere, it seems. And, you know, they've changed things a couple of times. Like the UCI has lowered their testosterone limit to five from 10, but come on, have we really just reduced women to a level of testosterone and our blood drawn at one time in history. Um, I just, it's just fascinating the way this thing has all gone. What do you think is driving this? Because I've been talking to people 
on this podcast for articles I've written over the years about this. And a few things come through. It's either, well, many people say this is just another form of misogyny. Um, others have said this is both misogyny and a pushing of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, a normalization even of gender stereotypes, which drives the pharmaceutical industry. But then we're seeing more and more countries like the UK, the US might be heading this way to self-declaration of gender identity. So anyone can effectively declare themselves the opposite sex and join your team. What are your thoughts about what might be driving this? Yeah, I think it's a combination. Um, obviously, we see the misogyny because it's not, you know, it's not just in sports. It's it's throughout all assets of life and women's, you know, female only spaces are being uh, violated and in a way that borders on like, I hate to use the word violence because, you know, that word is often used uh, by trans rights activists against us saying that, you know, our words are violence and things like that. But um, it's, it's very forceful and uh, there's no conversation around it. Um, it's just, you know, whatever the men want, they get, and the women should just quote bend over and take it. And, you know, there is a lot of money behind the movement. Um, the, the pharmaceutical industry, the Pritzker family, um, and there, there's actually a blog, you may have seen it, the 11thhourblog.com, where oh, I know. they- Jennifer, who, yeah, who writes yeah. It. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so kind of investigating, you know, you know, where is this money come from? Why is this happening? Um, uh, you know, high profile athletes being offered money to support this publicly. Um, it's, it's all done behind the scenes and it's very stealth it's very calculated. It's permeating uh, the news and um, it's kind of created for us like a media blackout for female voices that have any sort of opposition to it. We can't get a voice on New York Times or NPR, Democracy Now. The only people that would entertain this side of the coin is Fox News. Uh, so. Isn't I mean, it it's like we can't reach audiences. Well, the irony is you can't get a seat at the table with the IOC. Yeah. But I bet if you announced that you're trans identified, you would. I mean, this is the irony of it all. We're in an absolutely morbid, uh, uh, is that the word? Uh, yes, a morbid game of PR today. And whoever can drop the right keywords gets the cookie, as it were. Mm -hmm. I am really shocked by the way in which you and other women have been walked upon. Even the media shrugging of shoulders that you'll get from the Guardian, the Independent, these are ostensibly leftist, and I mean leftist papers that do not know historical materialism from their asses. It is very clear. I mean, even Jacobana, you know, New York-based publication, when after me, after I wrote about this debate, calling me transphobic, zero historical material analysis, zero. Because I, I compare this to the left telling the poor, ah, just ideas, Rich, you'll be fine. And of course they wouldn't do that. They have very elaborate narratives they have written and beautiful ones as well about supporting Sanders. They're all with it when it comes to social reading of culture. But the minute our bodies enter the scene, it's misogyny as normal. And it's, it's really, I think, excessive on the left. I dare say, I think the misogyny on the left is far worse than on the right. In these years I've been working on this, one thing has struck me time and time again. Right-wing men are not all that misogynist that we had, those of us on the left had before thought. And I've had to do some reckoning with that myself because it's like, oh, okay, okay. Because you know, I, the last time I spent a lot of time around right-wing men was when I was in the US Army. And even then, 
I had to do the same job as men. Let's say an airborne school. I had to jump out of the airplane with the same amount of weight on my back. I had to do the same number of jumps, the same kinds of night jumps, everything. The only difference was in PT tests where we had to do slightly less push-ups and more sit-ups. This was in the 80s. I don't know if that's changed, but women were actually expected to do more sit-ups. Um, and so I keep thinking about the way in which you and other sportswomen have been completely walked upon. Now, thank goodness, some have stood up and spoken, but there's even controversy there, isn't there? Such as the way Martina Navratilova was hounded on social media after speaking up. She sort of did a back step, a little cha-cha-cha here and there. And then now there is the organization that she's part of called Women's Sports Policy Working Group together with Donna De Verona, Donna Lopiano, Dorian Coleman, a few others, with supporters whose names you will recognize as well, Joanna Harper, who's done the research on, you know, on trans athletes, and Renee Richards. What are your thoughts about an organization like this, that on the one hand, Navratilova comes out and supports women-only sports, but on the other, seems to be part of this slippery slope agenda. And it's what some of the feminists call the nice feminist model or the true trans model, meaning let's work together. You know, like why are women trying to help men do something that these men should be doing for themselves? If you catch my drift. Yeah, it just feels like they've become traitors to their own sex. I mean, why? And it's real easy for them to throw women under the bus because they're not competing anymore. And, you know, they're all in their 50s, 60s and 70s right now. Um, it's just it's like mind blowing. Um, and once again, this group gets together. Does does anybody, you know, in the Save Women Sports arena have knowledge of this being formed? No. It just comes out and they come out with this policy statement and, um, you know, what they are trying to get the Biden administration to do. And it's like, okay, how many opinions did you actually get in order to form this? Just you five, you know, are you being supported by money? Uh, how did this group come to be? So it's just all very suspect and it's just so disappointing. Um, it's, it's not helpful for, for female sports really. Since 2018, you've been working with a few groups of women, both in the U.S. and internationally. Can you tell our listeners what you've been working on? Yeah, so um, in the U.S., we're working with lawmakers. Uh, we contact lawmakers of each state and try to get them to present bills that will protect fairness in women's sports. And just in January of 2021, uh, I believe there are currently uh, 14 bills that are um, in hearings or have been at least presented. And we're working with the Connecticut girls that have sued their state athletic association that's now pending in federal court. Um, you know, we've got legal counsel working with us, kind of helping us navigate waters. And um, we provide testimony when these hearings for these bills come up. Um, the only thing that I don't really know uh, to this point is what the Biden executive order is going to do for these bills. Because, um, you know, as we know that kind of threw a wrench in our plans that I thought was actually progressing really well. Um, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what happens um, with that. And then internationally, uh, I've been part of a group that um, is also working on preserving women's sex-based rights. And uh, I've done a video presentation uh, remotely in the UK for that. And, you know, a lot of times we help each other uh, get scientific papers published or provide testimony and things like that. It's, 
basically, you know, work groups where we can come together with ideas. And when uh, things come up in the news, we can provide um, statements and, you know, reactions to these things. And, you know, just try to make sure that there's not only one voice speaking on this issue. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to Sam Gent, who helped set up the sound system for our show. Please consider signing up for yoga classes with Sam at samgentyoga.co.uk. Also, please consider subscribing to our show. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. But Jennifer, what you're saying here, and let me just get this straight, is that women can do sports and think and, and write, right? That's where we are. It's 2000 freaking 21. And you guys are having <laughs> to do all of this stuff as if the wheel had just been invented. I feel like we're not far from throwing ourselves under the horses here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Once again, you know, just fascinating. Right. I mean, and this is all in addition to our day jobs, you know, I mean, we're not full-time activists. We're just passionate women who care about the future generations of girls and women's sports. And, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're spending our own money traveling and doing these things and, and, oh yeah, we actually had an event planned um, for April, uh, last year where it was going to be this big thing in Washington, DC. I had my plane ticket. Um, then of course COVID happened and it, unfortunately it had to cancel, but it was going to be big. Um, so we, we've put that on the shelf, but, um, we haven't forgotten about it. And we, we do have some backing and sponsors, um, that do want to help us with that. So hopefully once, uh, you know, this pandemic gets under control, we can, you know, kind of restart our efforts for public awareness. Well, let's talk about some of these bills going through, because I just saw yesterday, I believe it was Louisiana was the latest state to have a bill go through protecting women's sports. Oh, uh, I didn't even know about that one. I believe so, it was Louisiana, yeah. but you know, I've got COVID brain because I can't okay, remember yeah. anything from lockdown, but yeah. I believe it was in the South and I'm pretty sure it was Louisiana. It might've only been presented, but what happens is this, every time one of these bills goes through, invariably it's not in the Northeast and it's not in California. So you know what happens then? Media talking heads are saying, oh, in the backward South where they hate oh, trans yeah. <laughs> people and you know, Jennifer you know, Wagner Asali is a, a transphobic murderer who has signed <laughs> yeah. on to. And it's just like, you know, because a lot of the criticism I do in my work isn't I try to avoid the trans topic. In fact, I've dedicated myself to doing it specifically now that Biden's in presidency because um, there's an urgency because of what you just said. We do not know what his ex executive order will do and what it will translate to. But what does concern me here is that the media has played a very nasty role in propagating, uh, pardon my language, but bullshit as science. And you see this time and time again, again, one need just Google the Guardian or Independent with the word transgender, and we will see that feelings are actually textbook facts. They are in Gray's Anatomy, page 542, I guess, right next mm -hmm. to who knows the external auditory meatus or something. You know, we've got <laughs> serious problems of of cognizance happening, and it's been a it's been red carpeted through. I worry because, as I said earlier, I you know was racing. I was a very semi, semi-professional because of the army. I couldn't really dedicate more than I was doing, but I would have if I hadn't been in the army. And I was, it saved me because at that age in your late teens, you're just figuring, it's still adolescence <laughs> and yeah. you're figuring out things. And it was really good for my self-esteem. It was very good for my brain, for my, for my thinking processes. And there are a lot of girls like the Connecticut, you know, girls you mentioned, one of whom I'm interviewing, in fact, today, and they are experiencing this extremely young. They have few defenses because 
they are also teetering upon what's nice to do, what's proper to do. I mean, they too have been raised as you and I were to be kind, to be thoughtful. And they're being told that anything but capitulation is murder. <laughs> you yeah. know, and they don't necessarily have, not that they don't, but girls at that age in high school don't necessarily have the cojones to say, uh-uh, I'm not, mm-mm, now, mm-mm, shaking the finger and wagging the head, you know? And I do worry about a generation of kids growing up with this, girls being shown the front door from their own sports. And thinking that's normal, you know? Because they're told if they disagree with it that, yeah, they're transphobic, which to me, that word doesn't even mean anything anymore. I mean, it's thrown around so much as a, a threat and an insult and, and just a way to try to shut you down uh, that we're supposed to be so afraid of being called transphobic when if you use it so much and just, you know, call your uh, computer mouse uh, transphobic, you know, it doesn't mean anything anymore, you know? Well, my mouse identifies as okay. an elephant, just so <laughs> okay, you well, know. But, I'll tread carefully. But yeah, I... I <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, what shocked me from the beginning about this narrative is that we've had to pussyfoot around these men's feelings. We've had to constantly start sentences with, I do believe that all people who identify as trans should not be murdered, should have the rights to work and health and safety and housing and blah, blah, blah. And we go through this Hail Mary yeah. litany. Meanwhile, no one is raising an eyebrow about the fierce misogyny at the core and they might say well you're overusing the word misogyny ah no squeeze me but the minute i have to read article after article after freaking article about i feel like a woman i want a wretch i mean i have literally pushed three children out of my vagina and i can assure you that i do not know what feeling like a woman is. I know what a biological function of that was when I was pushing my children out of me, but you know what? The feeling like a woman has been the worst thing to happen to our collective humanity, I believe. This, this rehashing of 1950s sexism, and let's call it what it is, because it's misogyny, but it's also sexism being re-embraced by here's my reading of why this is happening. I do think that the job market has gotten really rough since the late nineties. I think a lot of men are resentful about women because unlike their fathers and grandfathers that had a pretty clean working plate, you know, they were women in the office were generally making their coffee and fetching their donuts. And now they have females who are on par and even more excellent than they in all facets of life, be it engineering, be it nursing, what have you. And I think that there is an internalized misogyny that our cultures in the West have never gotten over, not once. I think there was a band-aid put on this with certain legislation in the US and Canada and Australia, the UK, what have you, that said, okay, we're gonna make sure like in the UK that women are on these short lists so that we can have a better representation politically. And there are many things that happen in each country differently, but I don't think the problem of cultural misogyny was ever solved. And I say this as someone who has lived for years of my life in Central and South America, in the Middle East, in Asia, where conversely, there was no pretense in most of these countries to say, oh, well, we're from, I look at our women and they can be Pam Anderson and they can be NASA scientists. But at the same time, when I walked into an institute where I was working in, in let's say Rabat, Morocco, I was treated with utmost of respect. Sure, partly because I was a Westerner and an invited scholar, but partly because there is something to be said for countries that have not gone through the superficial gymnastics of pretending to be on par with and these equality measures. And I found that working in some of the countries where I've worked, I felt far less sexism in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and I just find it's, it's phenomenal that we are now in, you know, from the last 10 years, we've had to actually say, sex is real, sex is not on a spectrum, 
gender is not sex because that's what the trans lobby is saying that sex is what's a social construct and gender is what's between your ears and your legs mm -hmm. I kid you not and and it, I find it really shocking that we are being forced to have to negotiate the very terrain of our own survival all over again as if you know referring to the horses and what you know transpired in Great Britain for women to have the right to vote for women to have the right to own land, for women to have the right to seek divorce, for women to have the right to claim rightfully that they were raped within marriage, which I believe in our own country was only made illegal in 1984, Jennifer. So, I mean, I'm passionate about this issue because when I see any sort of injustice, it really gets, it gets me upset. But when I see the kind of injustice that's happening to you and other sportswomen, I'm just like, I'm constantly looking at my over my shoulder wondering, uh, is this like, you know, the sixth sense and uh, we're the only people seeing dead people everywhere? You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes I wonder, you know, I'll just randomly have this thought like, wait a minute, am I wrong? Like, have I been taken into a cult and this belief is totally wrong? And I was like, wait a minute, no, no, that's crazy. Like, oh my gosh, sometimes it's just <laughs> mind blowing. Well, yes, I mean, because we're also put in the position of having to answer to wanting certain people to die or being uh, implied within their will to self-harm because I'm sure you followed those tweets where if you say he will now you are making me have suicidal ideation and you're like wait a second <laughs> yeah so yeah um yeah I did have some kind of reservations about that in fact the very first time when I spoke to you um when you uh used uh you know male pronouns to refer to McKinnon, I was like, who is she talking about? I was like, is she talking about somebody <laughs> else? And then I was like, oh, oh, okay. She's calling McKinnon he. And then I thought, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that. You know, like I do respect this, you know, person's uh, dysphoria or whatever. That's fine. I don't mind using the she pronouns. Um, but actually my opinion on that really changed after listening to Magdalene Burns because you know, she just freaking lays it out there and said, I don't care if it's polite. It's an effing lie. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's a lie. And just the more I thought about that, I was like, yeah, we're, we're been conditioned to lie, to say things that um, just are not congruent with what we're seeing in front of our own eyes. And I'm not trying to, um, you know, create anybody's suicidal ideations or upset them in any way. But I want to remain grounded in reality if I can at least do that. And, you know, I, I've just kind of changed my philosophy on that a little bit. I don't police pronouns on people anymore, you know. Um, and some people might say that that is transphobic, but if you really, really think about it, is it? The inverse would be, well, as you said, I mean, to commit to a lie is where a lot of this started. I was one of them. I had the same moment that you had speaking to me three years ago when I was speaking with Julia Long for the first article I ever wrote about this subject. And she stopped me. We were in a cafe in East London and Julia did this great thing. She goes, why are you saying she? And I said, I just like, well, isn't it the right thing to, what do you mean? You're talking about a man. I mean, she said this in a British accent, so I can't mm -hmm. do that right yeah. now. But <laughs> it was really shocking to me. I mean, she was so polite and she sort of snapped me out of it. And it was right then and there that I was like, hmm, yeah. Like, <laughs> we yeah, do this. <laughs> yeah, we really do this out of an uh, obeisance to what we were told to do, what our Humanities 101 instructor said was the right thing to do, what our BFF said, and oftentimes, and this is a big wrench in the mechanics for women here, when friends of these women tell them, because the, many of us have friends who identify as transgender. Now, I do. Uh, I happen to know the person who put transgender studies on the map, 
in the US and that sort of spilled over to other countries. And as much as I went to the length of saying she and trans women, all this, I will not do that anymore out of a commitment, not just to reality, but to all of you women, all of the women listening, uh, why should we be paying lip service to a lie when in the end that lie was made? <clears throat> I spoke to Ray Blanchard initially uh, about this earlier um, last month. And like he says, initially there were just a few trans people here and there. It was, you could spend your whole life and have never come across a trans person or maybe come across a couple because these were the generally very dysphoric, truly dysphoric people. Okay. Who would have thought that from the 1970s today, it would become a cultural trend? And no, I you know, reject people saying that that's transphobic. It's, it's surely not. Data shows that this is now a trend and it's been pushed both by certain sectors in healthcare and definitely by the media. I actually think the media has more of a role to play than the healthcare itself. And we are told if we do not do this, that we're meanies. Well, yeah, here we are now, 20, 30 years later, and we're being told that not only is transgender a thing, but all these other, you know, flavors of, you know, Baskin Robbins, a thousand flavors of gender. Where does it end? Yeah, I mean, and what does that mean for sports? You know, if there's 27 sexes, do we just do away with the categories altogether? You know, um, I mean, you know, female sports were created because of the, you know, differences between men and women, physiological, physical differences. And we wanted to try to give women an opportunity to fairly compete and to find and celebrate the best female athletes and as that starts to get eroded culturally you know sports is going to be next they're going to say well we shouldn't have just two categories and where does this one person fit in and where does this one person fit in I honestly think a third category is really the only solution to this that's kind of what I'm advocating for those who push back on that idea, because many of us have made that suggestion, they say it's exclusionary. Yeah, and I would actually, yeah, I disagree with that because let's think about it. Long time ago, you know, sports were mainly for men and a woman's category was created. Now we could have said, well, hey, that's not fair. You're just putting us in, a, in our separate little category or our little corner, you know, um, and there's only two women that are gonna sign up for this race. Well, yeah, because it's so new, but there's a lot of transgender people and I've spoken to them who might be interested to compete if they didn't have to choose male or female category because they don't feel comfortable imposing on the women's category. So, you know, yes, in the beginning, it would be small. It would, it might feel exclusionary or like, you know, they were being othered, but I believe it would grow. and you know, transgender athletes can actually advocate for their own category and promote it and get other people to join it and create a movement that allows, you know, trans people of both male towards female and female to male to be able to have a safe space to compete in sports where they won't be, uh, you know, criticized for doing it. Um, I don't, I honestly don't see why that's billed as a bad thing. A lot of feminists would answer that by saying it's because the goal of many, not all trans people, but the ones who are dead set into entering women's sports are there under false pretenses. They want to enact misogyny. They want to destroy women's spaces and they see themselves as, as meriting destroying that space and being part of it. They basically want to force our hand to say, yes, you're really women. This is what it's about. It's about forcing false consciousness in a way. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we can't really do anything about those people that are 
trying to kind of destroy women's sports, I guess they must really just feel threatened. But, you know, like my husband has always said, you know, it's just not ethical. You know, he said, if he were to decide to transition, he said he couldn't live with himself if he, you know, took a medal from a woman, you know? Um, And the fact that these trans identified males do not feel that way as well, just tells me there's obviously ulterior motives and it's not just about competing and having fun. Uh, have you spoken with your husband about the possibility of him identifying <laughs> as a woman and participating with you? Well, that we have joked about it because he could definitely lead me out for a, an awesome sprint. <laughs> I told him I'd get him a wig, but yeah. So um... <laughs> what are your thoughts about the future of women's sports in terms of how to fight this? One, one question one of our listeners uh, sent me was to ask you about the likelihood of a strike or boycott of, of competitions by female athletes. What do you say to that? I think, you know, that would be extremely powerful, um, especially if it was at the Olympic level. We all know there's a few um, transgender athletes that may be competing at the Tokyo Olympics. And, you know, if that happened in those categories, that that would send a huge message. I mean, that would be worldwide. That would really get people talking about it. I think we're just up against the fact that a, a lot of people don't even know this is happening. You know, there's some people that I've told my story to, they're like, wow, I didn't even know that was possible or I had no idea. Uh, Even though it's consumed my life, there's people that have not even heard of this. And then the other thing is we haven't been able to really rally together and get everybody educated on what's really going on. And there's still some people that are brainwashed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just an uphill battle to try to, um, you know, get the women all working together. And I, I don't know what the future holds or how this is all going to work out, but we're going to have to keep fighting and, you know, just keep hopefully gathering more momentum with this. And, and, you know, the more that it's, it's been in the media a lot more lately. And, you know, I can only think that's a good thing, even if a lot of arguing takes place because it's just at least getting the issue out there and getting people thinking. And, you know, if one or two people change their minds because of something they read, maybe, you know, that's a good thing. True, the media has improved, especially in the last year over this issue, the last year and a half. Um, But it it seems like a cha-cha-cha to me. We go a bit forward, we go a bit back. It's really hard to know if the traction that we're making is permanent, temporary, COVID-related, people going nuts because of COVID-related, you know, there's, it's really hard also to read it because of COVID, no one is actually mm-hmm. participating. So everything remains more discursive than it were it real life and virtual like social media. So it does become a challenge to understand what's real. But some of the things that you mentioned earlier are of concern to me because it parallels what's happened in other countries. For instance, the Gender Recognition Act that happened in the UK happened pretty much quite quietly. It wasn't stealth, but it wasn't, it did not involve the voices of women and it should have. And this raises questions for lawmakers, for politicians across the, well, the English speaking world where this is really becoming a a norm, why women have been excluded about discussions regarding their human rights. Does this not shock you some days that in your own sports categories, in sports itself, women have been sidelined from discussing the one thing that could end their life. And I'm thinking of the Fallon Fox. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's just another example of men continuing to control everything. And well, we gave you this category, so you should just sit down and be happy. And, you know, isn't that enough? And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just more of the misogyny that, you know, we talked about earlier. 
Well, do you see that there would be other ways out, especially for young sportswomen, those in college, in high schools? What are their options, given that it seems that Title IX, in the US, Title IX is being eviscerated? <laughs> I mean, there's always, you know, forming your own league and, uh, you know, just saying, well, we're not going to participate in that. We're going to, you know, maybe form our own teams and, and do it this way. Um, but again, requires a lot of organization and people being on the same page. And, and we can't even get people that we thought were for, you know, protecting female sports to work together. You know, we, we thought Martina was on our side and now we see she's not really, you know, so it's like, it, I, I just don't know. So when I saw the names of the people on the board of Women's Sports Policy Working Group, I was a bit surprised to see Renee Richards' name there because he had spoken out. He was one of the first people, I remember I was living in India when he was cited on this, but he said, I would not advocate for trans-identified people to be competing against women. And he was, you know, not even a professional tennis player. He was, you know, a physician like yourself. Uh, and he was doing this semi-professionally and on a bad day could be women, right? Yeah. I mean, it just seems that the IOC lawmakers, the media, I mean, you know, this is misogyny at work. This isn't some kind of secret here. Why have women's voices then been systemically removed from the equation, sitting down at parliamentary or Senate meetings, having IOC members fairly represented 50-50 male, female? Of course, you see what I just said is sacrilegious because I'm not representing the whole Baskin-Robin spectrum, mm -hmm. am I now? Um, but any one of the 88 flavors, and we're actually having to underscore why we can think and reason and write and do sports as if it were like 1903 <laughs> it's sort of it's it's one of those do I laugh or do I cry moments yeah I mean yeah it feels like we're kind of at a crossroads and I don't know I just hope that if I can speak out a little bit about what's going on maybe it will give one other person courage to do the same. And maybe that person will give another person courage to do the same. And we'll just have to keep going that way. Thank you.